So I grew up in a small town in Nebraska right across the river from Sioux City, Iowa. And if you've ever been to Sioux City, you know that it has a, we'll say distinct smell. That's about as generous as I can put it. It has a very distinct smell. But the thing is, growing up in that area, you sort of get used to it. You sort of forget that it's there. And after a while, you forget that your area sort of stinks. And this is sort of the remarkable thing about human beings. We're incredibly adaptable. Like we get used to things like bad smells or loud noises or annoying noises, or we get used to the heat and the cold. We can, things that used to bug us, we can in some ways like start to drown those things out and, and not let them affect us. The same thing is true somewhat when it comes to things in our culture and sort of morals and habits and beliefs. That, that there are things that are sort of just in the air as a culture that over time we just get used to that we sort of, it's sort of the air that we breathe. But here's what happens. Eventually, those things can start to shape us. Like we get so used to them, we stop paying attention to the the fact that they're there. We let them start to shape our hearts and our ideas and our attitudes and our morals. Things that used to sort of stand out to us as problematic, they're things that we just sort of like, well, that's just normal, that's just the way our culture is, and it stops bugging us. One example of this today, and probably one of the most prominent examples of this today, is what is known as expressive individualism. I've used that term on Sundays before, but, but maybe you're thinking, what, what does that term even mean? You, sometimes, Chris, you use big words and we don't know what they mean. What does that mean? Well, even if you're not familiar with the term, I guarantee you're familiar with the idea. Think of slogans like this, be true to yourself, follow your heart, live your truth. Like, these are the slogans that really capture on a popular level the idea of expressive individualism. Now, I want to be clear before we we start to poke at this and get a, a little deeper into a critique here. In some sense, individualism is not a bad thing. We recognize that Scripture upholds the worth of individuals. We're not just nameless, faceless people in a void. We're not just kind of going along with the crowd. God knows us. He knows the hairs on our head. Each individual, he, he knows. And so there's a sense where individualism is true. We're, we're supposed to make our own choices, have our own faith. We don't just go along with society and the crowds. And so I want to uphold a certain view of traditional or of, of individualism, But the traditional view has always been grounded in sort of transcendent objective truth. Expressive individualism detaches it from objective truth and actually puts self as king. It enthrones the self. A philosopher, Charles Taylor, gives us a really helpful definition of what expressive individualism. He writes this. Expressive individualism is the understanding of life that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or by the previous generation or religious or political authority. So according to expressive individualism, you define you. You define your truth. You define your identity. In order to find that, though, you look inside. You turn inward and yourself is the authority. You don't let other people or institutions or religion or previous generations, you don't let anybody else tell you the truth of who you are is found inside. And as Australian church leader Mark Sayers points out, there's, there's an ethic that comes with this. This affects how we view things ethically. And here's sort of three highlights of the ethos 
of expressive individualism. The first is that the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. That's the most important thing in the world. Two, that traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Anything that would challenge your self-definition has to be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. And then finally, the primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. So you can't challenge the self-referential and the self-definition because if you do that, then you're intolerant and you're a hater. So look, whether you're familiar with this term or not, you don't have to look far to see that this is predominant in our society. It has taken control of our society and has shaped our society from the individual life choices people make to the relationships that they have to media, to social media, to education, to politics. Expressive individualism shapes our beliefs and our attitudes and our morals. And many, if not most, don't even know what's happening aren't even aware that it's the air that they're breathing. They sort of gotten used to it and accepted it and it started to shape them. And this can be even true in the church. Look, sometimes we point this out. Sometimes the church is very good at saying, hey, this is a problem in society. But oftentimes, because in some ways we've bought sort of the individualistic view of ourselves, we've adopted this mentality. And so our faith becomes just another way to sort of express this and experience this. So with that as introduction... What does this have to do with 1 Corinthians 6? What does any of this have to do with our study of 1 Corinthians? Well, the presence and influence of expressive individualism in our culture maps very well on top of what's going on in Corinth in the first century. In many ways, there are parallels between what the Corinthian church was giving into and what they were facing culturally and what we are facing culturally and are tempted to give into as well. It's not an exact one-for-one parallel, But the parallels are close enough that as we move through the rest of this section of 1 Corinthians this spring, as we get through, we start in chapter 5, as we get through chapter 7 this spring, I want to lay this category down for us because we're going to use it in the weeks to come as we think about what does it look like to apply the truths of 1 Corinthians to our lives today as a church. And so what we need here is God's word to sort of break the smell. Break the smell, break the spell, get us to to sort of recognize the stink that is in the air that we've been inhaling and allowed us that it's been shaping and not only recognize it, to repent in the ways we need to repent and turn from it in the ways we need to turn from it. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul highlights the damaging and the devastating and the tragic effect of when we breathe the air of our culture's beliefs and attitudes When we breathe this air, here's what happens to us as followers of Jesus. We go back to where we've been rather than following Jesus. We end up going back to the life that that Jesus rescued us out of rather than walking forward in godliness and faithfulness to Jesus. Selfishness and pride and individualism, they're going to take you back. They're going to take you back to that life of sin and corruption that Jesus pulled you out of. And so... The Apostle Paul, God's word to us this morning, speaks to us with an urgency, speaks to us with this sense of, hey, don't go back. 
Don't go back to where you've been. Don't, don't let the, the air that you're breathing culturally pull you back and pull you away from Christ. And so here's the, the, the main point that I want us to grab hold of this morning. Here, here's, here's the essence of what this passage has for us. It's this. Where you've been is not who you are. So don't go back to where you've been, but live from who you are. Let me say it again. Where you've been is not who you are if you're in Christ. So don't go back to where you've been. Rather, live from who you are. And two points to sort of unpack this main idea. The first is the danger of going back. And second, the power of living from who we are. So let's first consider the danger of going back. In verse 9, Paul gives this stinging rebuke as a, in the form of a question. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? And this question comes in the middle of this ongoing sort of correction and rebuke Paul's giving the church. And in some ways, we can trace this all the way back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians, but in other ways, more specifically, the challenge he's bringing started in chapter 5. And so what Paul, again, is confronting overall in this church is this, a love affair with worldly wisdom that was chasing things like status and success and power. And because the Corinthians had started chasing that worldly wisdom and moved away from the humility and moved away from the cross of Christ, that they were being shaped in this individualistic, power-grabbing, status-grabbing way of life. And they're becoming divisive and clicky and angry, and they were fighting. As we saw a couple weeks ago, they were minimizing sin, and so they would be practicing open sin, and they would tolerate open sin. And then as we saw two weeks ago, it got so bad that they were ripping each other off and suing one another. I mean, can you imagine, church, that things getting so bad, that, that, that we're, we're, we're so trying to one-up one another that we're taking each other to court and turning gospel community into an, an episode of Judge Judy. I mean, that's how dark it got for the Corinthian church. And, and after confronting multiple problems, multiple sins, the Apostle Paul hits them with this rhetorical, sort of sarcastic question, Corinthians, don't you know that those who practice the kinds of things you're practicing, the kinds of things you're tolerating, don't you know that that lifestyle will not lead you to, the, to inherit the kingdom of God? Have you guys become so blinded by your culture, so blinded by the air you're breathing, that you forgot or you're missing or, or you're now ignorant of the fact that those who practice these things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. In another way, we could ask this question, Paul's saying, where do you think all of this is going to lead you? The way that you're living, what do you think the end of it is? And he's saying, I can tell you, I, I, you know, there's a lot of things that I couldn't tell you about the end, but one place I can tell you it's not going to end, the kingdom of God. And then to sort of double down, he hits him again, this time more directly. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't be foolish. Don't be ignorant. Don't let your own heart or your culture tell you otherwise. But this, no sexually immoral people or idolaters or adulterers or males who have sex with males or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Look, Corinthians, don't be deceived. Open your eyes, Paul is saying. Smell the air. Once again, smell the stink in the air. The lifestyle choices that you are tolerating and giving yourselves over to, that you're surrounded by in culture, 
the path and the end of that is not life in God's kingdom. And what we also need to recognize is the sins Paul is listing here, they're not just sort of random sins. It's not like he just sort of stepped back and go, hey, what are the worst sins I can think of and tell him not to do that? No, 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 these sins are actually sins present in the church. And if you look throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, you see them popping up chapter after chapter after chapter. And we can see back in chapter 5, and then we'll see later in chapter 6 and other parts of 1 Corinthians, Paul goes after sexual immorality of various kinds. At the beginning of chapter 6, as we saw a couple weeks ago, he confronted their greed and their swindling and their suing one another. He's been spending time confronting their divisiveness and their cliques. And you better believe that when there's divisiveness and cliques, there's a lot of verbal abuse being thrown around. This uh, fall, when we get into chapters 8 through 11, we're going to see Paul deal very extensively with idolatry and drunkenness and once again sexual immorality. So all of these sins, they're not random. They're all sins that were a problem in the Corinthian church to one degree or another. Well, what the Corinthians were doing is rather than leaving that old life behind, rather than turning and following Jesus faithfully, they were going back. They were going back. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why were they doing this? And and why does any church, why does any person do this? How does this kind of thing happen? Well, it's the same thing that we've been tracing throughout our entire study of 1 Corinthians, is that through, through the thread that runs through the entire book, is this, is that all the sins that the, that the Apostle Paul confronts and that are spoken of, all those sins and all the returning to those sins are the fruits of pride and self-centered pleasure-seeking and status-grabbing. But like when we move away from the humility of the cross, a humility that calls us to die to ourselves, what is produced in our heart? It's pride. And we start to self-centeredly chase pleasure and status And these are the sins that results. Each sin in this list, one way or another, reflects self-centered status-grabbing and pleasure-seeking. So to start with, consider that, that sex is this beautiful, powerful gift from God. It's, it's beautiful and it's powerful. And, and as the church, I mean, at times our culture thinks the church thinks that it's, that it's this dirty thing or that we devalue sex. No, we value it far more than our culture because we believe it is so beautiful, so powerful that it needs strong boundaries. That God gave us this gift to be exercised within a covenantal, committed marriage. And so sex is this self-giving act. It's meant to be between two people who have committed themselves, a husband and a wife who have committed themselves to one another. We take it seriously because of how beautiful and powerful it is. Sexual immorality, which in this verse, the word is just sort of the general term for any sexual activity outside of marriage. Sexual immorality wants the pleasure of sex without the commitment. It wants the pleasure, but it doesn't want the fullness of what it is intended to be and the commitment that it's supposed to be exercised in. Adultery is similar. It's the willingness to break a covenantal commitment in the pursuit of pleasure. It's my pleasure is more important than this commitment and and the self-sacrificial marriage relationship I'm in, and so I'm going after my pursuit of pleasure. And both of these are selfish in the sense that they violate and disregard God's design rather than surrender to God's design. And they're also kind of a status grab in ways that I want to be 
known for my sexual attraction and performance. I, I, I pursue sex for, for gratification, yes, but also the status that it gives me within particular relationships. Now, let's address sort of the elephant in the room in this passage, where Paul lists among these sins homosexuality. And look, this is an emotionally and politically charged topic in our culture, but probably the most right now. Among, among a number of other things, this one is probably even more so than like racism and social justice and injustice. This is an issue that is, that is supercharged in our culture. It's one of the most significant challenges to the Bible's teaching today. And because it is so significant, here's what we're going to do as a church. I just want to kind of pause here for a second to do a little bit of a, a PSA, public service announcement here. First of all, because this issue is so important, we need to devote an entire sermon to it. And so next Sunday, Pastor Paul is going to preach on just this topic. He's going to sort of launch from this passage, but he's going to dive more deeply into this, this topic and sort of what our beliefs are as a church and how we want to approach this topic. Second, I want to invite you guys Wednesday evening, May 26th, right back here, 7 p.m. We're going to do a panel discussion and Q&A on this topic which again is gonna allow us to go a little bit deeper into like, what do we believe about this topic? How do we live as Christians in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to our beliefs? How do we disciple one another? How do we share the gospel with people? How do we raise our kids in this world? And so I wanna invite you to come to that, May 26th, uh, 7 p.m. It will be a, a great time as a church again to go further. So those two things we're gonna to do to address this topic. For this morning, I just wanna say a few things briefly to kind of make this point that underneath this list of sins is a self-centered, selfish pursuit of pleasure and status grabbing. So let me make a few comments about this, this verse and these sins right here. First of all, let me be clear that homosexuality, the scripture teaches homosexuality, both the desire and the practice overall, is sin. It's sin. And it is, it's practiced like sexual morality and adultery is a sinful deviation from God's design for sex, what is meant to be between a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. This sin, too, is a selfish pursuit in the sense that it steps outside God's design, and it is rather about pursuing pleasure and, in some cases, status. And what's worth noting here in this passage, in verse 10, the, and it's a little bit hard to see here in the English, but Paul is actually highlighting a specific type of homosexual practice that was prevalent in Rome at the time. And so in the original Greek, there's actually two words that the English translates as men who have sex with other men or males who have sex with other males. In other translations, you, you might see the English a little bit different, but there's two words. And both of the, and those two words represent sort of the relationship that existed between two men in a particular practice of homosexuality. One sort of assumed the dominant role and one assumed sort of the passive role. And so both of these roles had particular identities that were given to them, and they carried certain weight in society. And so the pursuit and the practice of this was not just about indulging in sexual lust, but it was also about the status and identity that was given. And so Paul is highlighting the selfishness and self-centered nature of this practice. And so taken together, we have to see that taken together, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, all three represent a self-centered, pleasure-seeking, status-grabbing, rather than living in the humility and self-surrender of the wisdom of the cross. And it's the same is true with the other sins listed here. What is drunkenness? 
It's, it's an extreme selfish pursuit of pleasure. It's let me feed the pleasure centers of my brain and my body to the point of excess. It's a rejection of self-control. And, and whether you're doing this for abject pleasure or whether you're doing it to avoid pain, there's a selfishness in its roots. Idolatry. We've talked about idolatry quite a bit on Sundays. What is idolatry? It is, it is giving your deepest love, your deepest affection, finding your meaning and purpose and identity in something other than God. And what's the catch with idolatry? It's this, that I think that false God is going to give me something. Like I'm going to chase the false idol and the false God of pleasure or success or wealth or false God of a false religion, whatever it is, because I think that God is going to give me something, something pleasurable, give me an identity. So I'm chasing after that self-centeredly. Revilers and verbally abusive people. Well, what, what, what is gained through that? Well, I gain power and control over people. If I can use my anger and my angry words to control you, to put you underneath me, to shout you down, then I have status over you. I have identity over you. Greed or thieves or swindlers. Like how many of us or how many people go after more and more and more and more and more and more and so they're greedy for things? How, how, many, how much of thievery and stealing and swindling is about not just getting more for yourself and pleasure but also getting status over people? Like I've robbed from you, I've swindled you. Look at, look at how I've controlled you and manipulated you. Over and over the sins that Paul calls out, the very sins the Corinthians had fallen into. They have their roots in turning away from God in the cross of Christ and turning to self. And so can you see some of the parallels here? Can you see some of the parallels between what was happening in Corinth and the expressive individualism that we face in our society today? Some of the language is different, some of the practices are different, but it has a similar roots. You could even say the same roots the enthronement of self. And here's what else. It makes absolute sense then, absolute sense, why Paul would say the end of that behavior and lifestyle is not the kingdom of God. It makes absolute sense when you consider what the kingdom of God is and the nature of the kingdom of God, that walking in that lifestyle would not lead you to the kingdom because in the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit are exalted and worshiped and honored, not self. They're the source of truth and life and meaning and purpose, not self. In the kingdom of God, we, there is, it's a place of self-sacrificing and surrender and humility, not pride. It's a place of goodness and peace and joy and forgiveness and reconciliation, not anger and strife and condemnation. The kingdom of God is the place where people love and serve one another, not use one another for selfish gain. The kingdom of God is a place where we rest in our identity as children of God and citizens of the kingdom, not strive and fight and compete with one another in order to gain status. It makes absolute sense that the Apostle Paul would say, this doesn't lead you to the kingdom of God because this kind of lifestyle is the antithesis of the kingdom of God. And so for us this morning who identify as followers of Jesus. For those of us this morning that would say, I follow Christ and I identify as a disciple of Jesus, we have to ask ourselves this question. Have we gotten so used to the air we breathe in our culture that it's shaped us and starting to shape us? Have we gotten so used to the air we breathe that we are being pulled back into where we've been and who we've been rather than faithfully following Jesus? Well, ask yourself, 
Is your sexuality and sexual practice selfish or surrendered? Are you gaining selfish pleasure and identity through your sexual practice? Or do you honor God by honoring his beautiful gift, by honoring his design? Do you throw self-control out the window and abuse alcohol and drugs and food and other bodily pleasures? Do you tell yourself, I deserve to enjoy this? All the while, selfishly indulging over and over and over. And look, again, I understand that sometimes that's burying pain. And there is pain we need to deal with and we need to get underneath that. But that is still a selfish way of covering that pain and indulging your pleasure. And if we were to go maybe even more deep than this, what, what, what most has your heart and affections? Like what, what most captures your love? Is it Christ in his glory? Is it God the Father in his majesty? Is it the Holy Spirit in his beauty? Or is it self? What, what gives your life meaning and purpose? Is it glorifying God, following Jesus, living on mission, or is it living for comfort and ease and wealth and success? Like have you so enthroned yourself that if anybody challenges your self-definition, that you get angry, that you verbally abuse them, that you shout them down, that you attack them? Have you so enthroned self? Have you so convinced yourself that no one has a right to challenge you, that you make enemies of those who see things differently than you? Do you pull away and divide from brothers and sisters in Christ who would try to correct you and, and, and point you to scripture and say, hey, you need to turn from sin and repent from sin? Do you angrily shout down or tweet down or Facebook post down those who disagree with you? Do you try to control others through your anger and your angry words? Or in your pursuit of happiness and self-definition, are you being greedy? And look, greed can take many forms. Sometimes the greed is, I just want more success. I want more wealth. I want more possessions. But you could also be greedy. I want more attention. I want more friends. I want more people to notice me and give me status. What is it that you most want? What is it that you're most after? Or, or how about this? Are you competing with others, whether openly or maybe just even internally, for status and recognition and position? Look, that's greed, because you want more. Do you swindle others? And again, maybe you've never swindled anybody out of money. Maybe you have, and maybe you're doing that. But there are other ways to swindle people. Are you swindling people and trying to gain control over them through emotional manipulation? Swindling out of them out of their time and their emotions and their trust and their friendship to meet your selfish needs. This is what happens, church, when we, when we breathe in and inhale deeply our culture and let it shape us. Is this where you're living? If you identify as a follower of Christ, I want to speak to you first. Is this where you're living? then God's word would say to you, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. That life, that path, the end of it is not the kingdom of God. So here's another question for you. Why go back? Why go back? Why go back to the very sins and the very dysfunction and the very destruction and the corruption that is going to wreck you and wreck others and ultimately lead to God's righteous judgment? Why go back to that life? Why go back to the sexual immorality? Why go back to the anger? Why go back to the drunkenness and abuse of, of drugs and food? Why go back to the empty pursuits of meaning and purpose? Why go back to the greed and the swindling? Why go back to any of that? This morning, here's what God's word calls us to. It says, don't go back. Who you've been is not who you are if you are in Christ. And so let's not 
inhale deeply our culture, the cultural air. Rather, let's notice the stink. Let's repent of the stink and let's turn to the life that is in Christ. Because here's the beautiful gospel hope for us this morning. Rather than living in who we once were and the corruption and power of sin, we can live in the goodness and the power of who we are in Jesus. From the, the strong rebuke and warning, Paul does this beautiful gospel reversal. He, he reminds the Corinthians of who they are and he reminds us who we are. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Yes, at one time you indeed walked in these things. At one time, this is what defines you. At one time, you were enslaved to your selfishness and your pride and your sin. And this is the testimony of many of you. At one time, this is who you used to be. This is how you used to live. At one time, you gave over into sexual immorality. At one time, you practiced sexual immorality and adultery. At one time, you gave yourself over to homosexuality. At one time, you were selfishly pursuing pleasure and identity through sex. But the testimony of some of you is that one time, some other false god, whether it was a false god of false religion or comfort or wealth or success, had your heart more than Jesus did. The testimony of some of you in here is that at one time, you were chasing greed. You were going for more and more and more. At one time, the testimony of some of you in here is you were swindlers. You were swindling people out of their money. You were swindling people out of their, their relationships and their time and their emotions that the testimony of some of you in here is that you were given over to drunkenness and alcohol and substance abuse. Like friends, at one time, at one time, you were enslaved to your sin and selfish desire. At one time, you were damaging yourself and others and you were headed for God's righteous judgment. But, but God. Maybe two of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God and his grace and his mercy doesn't leave you in your sin. It doesn't leave you to his judgment. He sends Jesus into the world. He sends Jesus into our sin-cursed, broken world. And what does Jesus do? He lives the perfect life that you and I could never for us. He does that for us. And not only that, he lays down his life and he is killed as the perfect and full and complete payment for our sin. But he doesn't just die. Praise God, he's resurrected in glory, victorious over every sin, over every evil power, and over death itself. And he ascends into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God. All the work of salvation accomplished and completed, and one day he's returning to make all things new and reconcile all things to himself. And here's the hope of the gospel for us. If we turn from our sin, as we confess this morning, if we turn from our sin, repent of our sin, and turn to Christ in faith, new life in Jesus. So here's the good news of you, for, for you from 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. If you are in Christ, you've been washed. You've been washed. Though your sin was at scarlet, that the image of that verse is of a stain that you can't remove. A stain, maybe it's like a, a, a juice stain or a mud stain or grass stain. You, you've, you've experienced those stains that no matter how much you wash it, you can't get it out. The stain of sin had stained you and you could not get it out. But through Jesus Christ, you made pure white, white as snow. You've been washed from all of the filth and the corruption and the shame of sin. Not only have you been washed, you've been sanctified. 
This means the power of sin has been broken in your life. You're no longer enslaved to it. The power of sin has been broken. And not only that, don't miss this. That you've been sanctified means you've been set apart. You're not common anymore. You're a child of God. You're a son or daughter. And you've been given a special purpose. Your meaning, your purpose, your life is now about him and his glory. You are loved and you are cherished. And God said, hey, you're mine. And you're going to live for me and live for something greater than self. Not only have you been washed, not only have you been sanctified, you've been justified, meaning your sins, all of them have been forgiven. No more guilt, no more judgment, no more condemnation, no canceling for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid for every one of your sins. Friends, through Jesus Christ, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God, who you've been is not who you are. Who you've been is not who you are. You have been radically, supernaturally, utterly, and forever changed. That's the good news of the gospel for us this morning. That's the good news that this verse holds out for us. But here's something else we can't miss. Something we we have to recognize about what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Look, the verbs washed and sanctified and justified, they aren't just simple past tense. Look, as beautiful as it is that these things have happened to us in the past, there's more to it. These verbs signify what, what, what I, I'm kind of calling like a reverse spiritual Chernobyl for us. You guys are familiar with what happened in Chernobyl in the 80s? A nuclear reactor meltdown, there was an explosion, and, and that did damage and destruction, but there was also this lingering contamination of the nuclear fallout that's had devastating effects into the future. What Jesus did is sort of the reverse of that that nuclear bomb that was dropped when Christ was crucified and resurrected, that nuclear bomb that was dropped into your life when you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified, guess what happened? That has power now. You have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is working in you to transform you so that you can walk in faithfulness and obedience to Christ. Do you know this, church? You can please God, and don't let any well-meaning pastor who doesn't want to undermine sin tell you otherwise. Through the Spirit, you have the power to please the Lord and walk in faithfulness. He's given you his Spirit to do that. This is what it means to be washed and sanctified and justified, is to walk in newness of life, in the power that we have. This is what God has done. This is what Christ has accomplished. This gives punch to Paul's point. Why go back if this is true of you? Why go back if you've been washed and sanctified and justified and you have life in the spirit now to walk faithfully and follow Christ? Like you used to be like this list. You used to do this. You used to be enslaved to this. But now you've been cleansed. You've been set apart. You've been set free. You've been forgiven. And you have life and you have power. Why go back? Why go back? Why go back when you have every hope, every reason, and every power not to? Why listen to the lies of self and expressive individualism when true freedom and joy and identity and meaning and purpose are found in Christ? Why go back when God has lavished every spiritual blessing on you in Christ and has made you a new creation? Why go back? Why go back when you have the hope of eternity that when Jesus returns and restores and renews all things, you're going to be caught up in that new creation and part of that new life forever? Why go back? When that old life leads outside the kingdom, when you can experience life in the kingdom, why go back? 
Friends, where you've been is not who you are, so don't go back, but live from the power of who you are. And maybe this morning you hear this, but you're more aware of like sin has just been beating you up. You feel like sin has been eating your lunch and you just feel wrecked. And maybe as I was asking you to sort of reflect on the ways that self and expressive individualism has maybe captured your heart, you're like, man, I'm kind of stuck there. I have inhaled that air so deeply that it's starting to shape me. Well, here's the good news of the gospel for you. Remember, you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. That hasn't changed if you are in Christ. But now, turn from your sin. Through the Spirit, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Walk in the humility of the cross and humility of confession. And Christ is at work in you to set you free. There's hope for you. But here's what else needs to happen. Get in community. Be a part of the community of God where the Spirit of God is at work and is transforming us together as we walk with one another, loving one another, correcting one another, encouraging one another, speaking truth to one another, discipling one another, serving one another. Get in on this together. Because if you look around, what kind of people is God saving? He's saving people with a past, with mess. He's saving people that once used to walk like this and he's transforming them and he's making them into a community where they walk with one another as as God transforms them. Look, if your story is you were raised in a Christian home and you became a Christian at a young age and there's just been a ton of grace, praise God. Look, you didn't need Jesus any less. You needed Jesus just as much as the person who has the darkest of dark sin. But but Christ is redeeming both those people in that story as well as those who have been in the deepest, darkest pit of sin. And he's bringing us together into one community where his spirit is at work together in us. And so if you want to walk in the freedom of being washed and sanctified and justified, get in on this community. Yes, it's messy. Yes, it's hard. Yes, yes, it's going to be painful at times, but there is hope here because the spirit of God is here. There's hope here because God has promised to work and to complete his work. He's promised because he's poured out the spirit on his church. There's hope here for us because look, at the end of the day, through Christ, we're not a people engaging in a battle of wills to see who gets the self, who's, to see whose self gets the premier place and the loudest voice. The church is not just a disjointed, disconnected bunch of people selfishly looking inward. No, we are the washed, sanctified justified people of God who have his spirit and who are being transformed by his power. And if you're here this morning and you've never experienced this, well, Christ holds out his grace to you and I want to invite you, come be washed. Come be sanctified. Come be justified. Come experience a new life in Christ. To turn away from enthroning self and the expressive individualism that is running, ran, just running wreckage in our, in our world. Turn from that and come find true life and joy and meaning and purpose that will lead you not to judgment, but to the kingdom of God and all that he has for you in that. And look, this is why the church does not stiff arm those in the world because God is saving sinners like this God is saving people, and so this is why we extend hospitality. We welcome people in, because this is who God is, and this is who God saves. Friends, when when the Apostle Paul said a few verses back to, to not remove ourselves, it makes perfectly clear why. Because this is who God saves. Also, this is why we don't hide our sin. 
This is why we don't pretend that we have it all together and we don't sin anymore. No, we got messes and our messes have messes. We are some of the most sinning, sinniest sinners there are. But because of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power, we are being renewed. The final word over us is new life in Christ. And as believers in Jesus, we want to hold that out to you who don't know Christ. We want you to see Jesus working in our lives in real time. We want you to see what God does to sinners because this is who our God is. And so this morning, you can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. Even this morning, even in this room, Christ holds out his grace to you. And so in light of this grace, don't go back. Don't go back. Where you've been is not who you are. So don't go back to where you've been, but live from the power of who you are. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.